Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Well, there's people who live along Long Island Sound who will just straight up tell you that Lyme disease came from a place called Plum Island. It's kind of closer to Orient Point than it is to Connecticut, but everything's pretty close there. It is a place where some significant research has been done into animal diseases. And if you want to get super specific about it, then you go back far enough. There was an ex-Nazi scientist who had some relationship to the place and who appeared to be kind of interested in ticks. However, a lot of what we think about Plum Island or have heard about Plum Island really kind of is in the area of cryptozoology and X-Files paranoia. And then there's some real stuff that's worth talking about, too. We're going to do all of that today and also tell you how the place is likely to be preserved now. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is one of these shows, and I know I say this from time to time, this is one of these shows where we could easily do, this is a show about Plum Island, by the way, I shouldn't say that. Plum Island is an island off the coast of Connecticut and even more closely off the coast of uh, New York's Long Island. Uh, and, and we could easily do two very chunky, you know, not at all artificially padded shows about Plum Island, plus a third show on where Lyme disease, or disease originated. Because there are people listening to the show right now who think that Lyme disease originated in the government research lab on Plum Island and then came to Lyme, <laughs> and old Lyme and other places. I don't think that's true. I've been, done an awful lot of reading about this now. It doesn't really seem like that's probably true, but you could do a whole show about that and where else Lyme disease has been found and how old and 60,000 years old maybe and maybe present in the 5,300 years young Tyrolean man who was unfrozen. I, we could do a whole show about that. That's what I'm telling you. But we're not doing a show about that today. We're going to try to do a show about the totality uh, of the story of Plum Island. It's a story that certainly dates back to a time when there were no Europeans here on this continent. Uh, it's a, a story that uh, touches base with the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, uh, with a fort 
uh, founded around the turn of the century that was at least sort of active uh, in World War One and World War Two. Uh, it does include uh, this uh, mysterious and fairly top secret uh, animal disease research facility. Uh, it includes an attempt by Donald Trump to buy it for a golf course, of course, what else, in 2013, but also Donald Trump signing a piece of legislation in December of 2020 that will probably have the effect uh, of preserving Plum Island. Because the other thing that's amazing about Plum Island is because it's so restricted, so because access is so incredibly restricted, it has, as you're about to hear, this abundance uh, uh, of less trub- troubled and more untrammeled wildlife uh, and, and nature and ecosystems. It also, I mean, Fort Terry, the fort I meant it was kind of alluding to before, is because it hasn't been vandalized or anything because, because nobody can get out to it. So it's kind of this amazing place. So, I mean, I'm just touching upon some of the uh, ways in which this is a, a pretty interesting story. Uh, we have a lot of people here to help uh, tell the story. Uh, I should also say it's like all over popular culture. You'll hear one of the most famous examples uh, a little bit later, but there are, you know, mystery novels by Nelson DeMille and there's all kinds of stuff. Um, there's a there's a documentary, uh, a paranoid documentary starring Jesse Ventura in which he spends about half the time lamenting the fact that security precautions are inadequate on Plum Island and the other half of the time lamenting the fact that whenever he tries to sh- when he tries to show up at Plum Island unannounced he encounters massive amounts uh, of of pretty active proactive security uh, which he doesn't like that but he doesn't think there's enough security either so Go figure. All right. So I've prattled on long enough. Let's get the guest uh, going here. We're going to start with Marion Lindbergh, a conservation specialist for the Nature Conservancy and the author of Scandal on Plum Island. A commander becomes the accused. That's one I didn't even mention in my long summary. We're going to swing back to that eventually. But Marion Lindbergh, uh, first of all, welcome to the show. And uh, and let's uh, talk a little bit about Plum Island. Thanks for being here today. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. And you did a great summary. <laughs> I know this is radio, but I would like to try to uh, paint a, a picture as I see Plum Island. Yes, please do. You you are one of the fairly small group of people who are not involved in, in, in that kind of uh, veterinary research, who has been there, who's walked around there, who's seen the sites. So tell us what it looks like. Correct. Well, think of some of the most beautiful coastal views that the East Coast affords, curved sandy beaches, boulders where seals haul out, bluffs and dunes, over 225 bird species, and the story of human and geological history going back thousands of years, told by the land itself, the water, and the vistas. Now, couple, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to keep going. Oh, keep going, keep going. Yeah, keep painting, <laughs> keep painting. That, couple yeah. that with the opportunity a really unique opportunity to address social injustices to America's first peoples and members of the LGBTQ community while preserving habitat that supports rare species. So that's my view of the right. And so, so that's kind of the plan now. We should say that uh, the research facility, the semi-mysterious research facility, is going to be closed fairly soon. The plan is to it's – it's a biosafety lab level three – uh, which is not the highest level. It's also it's been there since '54. I think there's reason to believe it's maybe not state of the art. <laughs> um, so its uh, functions are going to go out to a place called Manhattan, Kansas, 
which is uh, ironic because the original flying monkeys from Wizard of Oz were developed on Plum Island. Okay, <laughs> that's not true. That's not that's a falsehood. So, but anyway, it's gonna it's gonna be moved out to Kansas, and there was a plan to help finance this move to sell Plum Island to the highest bidder. Uh, maybe you should pick up the story there and, and say what happened, why that didn't happen, and what's going to probably happen now. Okay, correct. Um, I would be happy to try to do that. Yeah, so this all started after 9-11. President Bush signed an order uh, uh, asking the Department of Homeland Security to uh, look around for a place to put a higher level facility. As you said, Manhattan, Kansas was chosen. And um, around the time that that, that, that the uh, government was doing its administrative process to decide that, Congress very quietly in one of the very large appropriations bills that they're famous for um, uh, instructed that Plum Island should be sold at auction. And this bypassed the normal federal procedures for disposing of surplus federal property. Those require the uh, General Services Administration, which is the government's realtor, to offer the land to other federal agencies. And if they don't want it, then to offer it to state and local governments uh, that have jurisdiction. And if they don't want it, then to offer it to nonprofits and only then to sell it. But Congress quietly bypassed that. So I've been involved in a lot of land preservation deals, but none has, but this one has required overturning an act of Congress. And it took a lot of years, a lot of work by many people uh, from a number of organizations in Connecticut, New York, and elsewhere, national organizations as well, and uh, great help from Connecticut's elected officials. Uh, and finally, as part of the massive COVID stimulus bill, which had a lot of things in it, including copyright reform and uh, many, many other aspects, there was a provision to undo the sale requirement of Plum Island. So that's where we are now. We have an opportunity to chart the future and not just fight this past mistake. Right. So and there, there's a, a, a drafted plan of what uh, the island would look like if it could be basically used for conservation, preservation of natural habitats, some fairly restricted, you know, educational visiting, and maybe some uh, very limited guided tourist visiting. I mean, what does it take to get from where we are right at this moment to something where something like that, where we would be reassured that that that's the way things were going to be going forward? Well, we'll see. There are a lot of people working on it. There are a, a number of strategies. Uh, that There's the Preserve Plum Island Coalition, which is a group that was put together around 2013-2014 that has an um, Audubon, the Nature Conservancy, Save the Sound, uh, Citizens Campaign for the Environment, and number, uh, the, the, the Coast Defense Study Group, which is a military history group, a number of organizations coming together uh, to try to make this happen. And um, so, there are a couple of different uh, ideas. Of course, you know we, we, we think that a public owner would be the best equipped to manage it properly. So there aren't that many candidates for that, right? There's the federal government and the state government. Uh, it seems a little bit large for the local government. So it's a matter it takes it's it's going to take uh, you know um, two to do this dance. We can decide that we think uh, the National Park Service is the best owner and manager, but if they aren't interested, if they have other pressing priorities, then it's not going to happen. So it's a matter of a dance that requires uh, uh, finding out 
who is most open to doing this and, uh, and, and how do we make that happen? So we do have the support of uh, the senators uh, and representatives from Connecticut and New York. Senator Schumer was very helpful uh, in, the, uh, in the action that happened in December. And so we are working all of the levers that, that we can. Um, so it's a, it's a long process because the, 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 the lab is not really scheduled to close until 2023. And the buildings, uh, the, the, the work of the labs has always been subject to what they call the autoclave process, uh, which is a very extreme heat, which uh, destroys any pathogens, um, but they will be doing additional contamination. Uh, of course, they, the idea is not to have members of the public go into the buildings on the west side of the island. That's a, it's a, a small, very discreet part of the island and the rest of the island, which has been zoned for conservation, um, very forward thinking of the town of Southhold. Uh, the rest of the island um, is mostly uh, in its natural shape, except for the Fort Terry buildings, which uh, there are about uh, a dozen of the original buildings, the administrative heart in, uh, you know, not the greatest condition, but as you say, not, uh, you know, it's been natural deterioration. It hasn't really been a vandalism uh, and, and some of them in better shape than others. And they provide the opportunity for uh, some restoration, perhaps a small dorm for researchers who are clamoring to get onto the island to do some ecological research. There's a lot of ecological management that could happen. What we want to do is to try to get some of that ecological management in place sooner rather than later, because there, there are invasive species that are damaging some of the uh, incredible communities, uh, natural communities on Plum Island. So that's that's an effort now. Uh, but we have a lot of really good people who are working on this and uh, the support of the public will be so uh, important. And I really hope we can get your listeners the opportunity to visit the island. Right, but you listeners will not be touring Lab 257 or anything like that. And that, yeah, I mean, I'm glad you said that. I was going to ask about that. And I, I realize that's not your area of expertise necessarily. But clearly that whole area is going to have to be, yes, decontaminated pretty extensively and, and probably cooled off. Uh, yes, the, the Lab 257 is pretty interesting building. It's one of, um, it, it, it was the, it's the access between the uh, first and second type of federal use on the island. So Lab 257 was building 257 and it was the um, torpedo storage or you know, mine and torpedo storage facility for Fort Terry because that's one of the things that they did at Fort Terry. They never were engaged in any kind of combat or defensive firing. Uh, it was built at a time of great fear about an attack by the Spanish Navy when the United States and Spain were engaged in the um, controversy over uh, over the Spanish treatment of Cubans. And uh, so uh, there was a alarm over the state of coastal defenses. And Fort Terry was a number, one of a number of forts that was built, but it never saw any action. They did, um, they practiced harbor mining because uh, that had actually been done in, in Cuba. And so they had, the, they built a building with very thick cement walls far away from any of the barracks and other buildings on, on Plum Island. And that building still stands. And that is the building that after Fort Terry was decommissioned after World War II, that was then converted into the first animal disease center uh, opened in 1954. And there's a 
a, a pretty interesting uh, New London Day article about when the reporters were shown the newly renovated lab in 1954. And a a, a, a one-way shoot for the animals was, was built at that time, added to the building. So that building is very far away from anything. It's easily cordoned off. And um, you know, New York state officials have worked very hard with the federal government representatives and contractors to um, to assess everything about Plum Island, both the interior and the exterior, and uh, and they're pretty satisfied with um, with with the the plans for Building Two Fifty Seven. All right, so um, there's so much to cover here, uh, but we would be remiss if we did not at least um, uh, pause for a moment uh, with your book, Scandal on Plum Island. Actually, I mentioned the Nelson DeMille book. I noticed that he blurbed uh, your book um, <laughs> as well. Uh, and so this is a, a historical account of uh, of a commander uh, who in the 1910s, well, you should tell the story of what happened at Fort Terry. All right. So this seaside post uh, didn't have a lot of discipline in the early 1900s. Uh, as they say, there was no action. Uh, so they sent somebody who was pretty buttoned up to be the commander, Major Benjamin Keeler from Western Iowa, uh, who had gone to West Point, fought in the Philippines in the Philippine War. And um, and so he gets to Plum Island. He brings his sister because he's unmarried. So he brings his unmarried sister to live with him and help him entertain visitors. And he, he is, by all accounts, doing a great job until the end of 1913, he's brought to Governor's Island and he's told that a captain has leveled accusations against him that he's that that he the major groped both the captain and other male subordinates and uh, major keeler denied this uh, but he was uh, court martialed and it was the beginning of federal policy against uh, perceived homosexuality in the military yeah, you can uh, you can sort of argue context. you can sort of argue that there's a, a a dotted line anyway from there to don't ask don't tell. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. It got it got worse before it got better, mm-hmm. um, but it took a long time. And uh, it's a fascinating transcript. The court martial was uh, of, um, uh, just full of bias and prejudice and innuendo. So as a um, I, I'm a lawyer. I um, um, have, have worked on cases that uh, illustrated the <laughs> problems with the uh, legal system, and and this really played to that interest. And um, it also is just a fascinating social context because this was um, at the end of the 1800s, as you know, uh, women were seeking the vote, and they were actually succeeding in certain places, and they were uh, in public life more than ever before. And there were some men that were not happy about this. One of them was Theodore Roosevelt, who played a very large role in uh, in, in pushing America toward war with, with the Spanish and uh, uh, the Rough Riders, one of the most enduring aspects of the Spanish-American War. And uh, he was giving speeches about how American men had become too weak and too effeminate. And of course, what makes men strong? War. Uh, and 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 he really was very ushering in this um, you know very um, militarized and aggressive idea of manhood, um, and part of that was a pushback against all things feminine. Uh, that's this is when the Boy Scouts started in 1910. It's when bodybuilding and going to the gym and team sports and the resurrection of the cowboy as the American hero. 
And one of the fallouts of that was the was a, a real scrutiny of men's body types and the way they um, the way they conducted themselves. Were they were they obviously sexually interested in women or not? And Major Keeler was really more interested in his gardening and um, and reading uh, and spending and having tea with his uh, with his sister <laughs> than uh, than a lot of the macho things at the fort. And so. The, you know, the, the book talks about how uh, the attitudes of the time and the, the malice of uh, some of the men at the fort combined to uh, and the hysteria uh, uh, about um, people who didn't conform to the sexual mores of the day all combined uh, in a very unhappy way for him. What was the ultimate disposition of Major Keeler's court martial? Uh, well, uh, it was a very mixed verdict. Uh, it's. It, it makes no logical sense. The verdict. Uh, he was he was cleared on some things and and not on others, and he ultimately uh, went back to Iowa and uh, lived the life of a farmer. Well, on that possibly bucolic, and, and now the lab is going to follow him out there to Kansas. All right. So uh, on that note, we're going to take a little break here. When we come back, we're going to focus kind of specifically. Uh, we're going to add another guest, uh, but Marion is going to stay with us, uh, and we're going to focus kind of specifically on this uh, research facility. Tie back your hair and prep materials. The materials. One, don't you taste a sniff? You know you should be wafting if you're taking a whiff. Two, don't mix it in until the label's checked again. Three, no food or drink unless you want to have a spiny dead in the morning. And if you follow this, you won't mitigate the risk. I got lab rules, I count them. If your profile helps us catch Buffalo Bill in time to save Catherine Martin, the senator promises you a transfer to the VA hospital at Oneida Park, New York, with a view of the woods nearby. Maximum security still applies, of course. You'd have reasonable access to books. Best of all, though, one week of the year, you get to leave the hospital and go here. Plum Island. Every day of that week, you may walk on the beach. You may swim in the ocean for up to one hour under SWAT team surveillance, of course. And there you have it. This offer is non-negotiable and final. Catherine Martin dies, you get nothing. Plum Island Animal Disease Research Center. Sounds charming. Of course, that is former uh, Connecticut Governor Ella Grasso talking to Mad Dog Taborski. Uh, we have the audio. No, it's not. That's not. It's from Silence of the Lambs. You know that. You know that already. But there's Plum Island right there. Uh, Plum Island does occur an awful lot in popular culture. It uh, is speculated at one point <laughs> that Cloverfield or the monster that is in the movie Cloverfield uh, is from Plum Island. He is not. I, 
I knew him personally. He's not from Plum Island. Plum Island, no connection to that. Uh, but, I mean, you just can't have something like this. You can't have uh, a research facility like this in a restricted location that's very close to population centers. The thing that it's the closest to uh, is actually Point Orient uh, in New York uh, in Long, on Long Island. Uh, but you can't have something like that without people speculating about it all the time, uh, worrying about it all the time, wondering what sort of things are coming wafting to, you know, the Connecticut coastline on prevailing winds from the facility. And as I said at the top of the show, there's been rampant speculation that Lyme disease comes from there. Lyme disease has been around a really long time, probably doesn't come from uh, Plum Island, uh, and, and all kinds of other mostly kind of crazy conspiracy stuff. But the reality is there is this facility there, and somewhat disturbingly, it's getting older uh, and and maybe isn't state-of-the-art, isn't as secure as and, and up-to-date as it should be. That's why they're moving it out to Manhattan, Kansas. But here to tell us a little bit more about that uh, is Jeff Mano, making, I believe, his third appearance uh, on our show, spread out over 11 years. Uh, he's the co-author of Until yeah. Proven Safe, The History and Future of Quarantine. Uh, Marion Lindbergh is still with us, uh, conservation specialist for the Nature Conservancy, author of Scandal on Plum Island. So, Jeff, welcome back. Uh, it is your third appearance, I believe. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's great to be back. It's been a long time. Yeah. So, um, maybe just once again, I, I keep referencing, as does Dr. Elector, the Plum Island Animal Disease Center, but maybe just quickly mention your understanding of what it is and why it's sitting out there in the middle of Long Island Sound. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, as, as you mentioned, and as the name itself implies, you know, it's a it's a place for high security uh, animal disease research. It's deliberately on an island so that it can be, um, you know, contained by the ocean waters itself uh, so that, you know, people don't accidentally uh, drive a car into the facility or, or that kind of thing. So it's it's both uh, natural security and actual security from, you know, potential attack. Uh, but it's meant to research uh, diseases such as foot and mouth disease. Um, you know, which is highly contagious and can result in, you know, mi millions, if not even billions of dollars of damage to livestock herds, um, you know, where and it's and it spreads incredibly easily. So by keeping it contained on an island, the idea is that it's actually the safest place you could you could have it. Um, of course, as you just mentioned, it, it is getting older. Um, and then also it's only a, a biosecurity level three lab, which means there are other diseases that it's not actually uh, licensed to uh, to hold or to research, which is one of the reasons, there are many reasons, but it's one of the reasons why they're actually closing down Plum Island uh, in the next couple of years and, and shifting all of that research into the very heart of livestock country uh, out in Manhattan, Kansas. Yes, and in your article, uh, which uh, you you uh, co-authored, well, actually, you, uh, you've written two pieces, but um, your article for Wired that you co-authored with Nicola Twilley, you, you mentioned that there's there are some people who question the wisdom of this, that you are, uh, first of all, putting something right in the middle uh, of an area that's full of the kind of livestock that would have much to fear from diseases like hoof and mouth disease and, and related diseases. You're also putting it right in the heart of the tornado belt where things can go, you know, crashing into other things. Uh, so talk a little bit about that. Like. <laughs> <laughs> were, were you ultimately you you guys were out there? Were you ultimately persuaded that we shouldn't lie awake at night worrying about this problem instead of the Plum Island problem? Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, it's you have to have a lot of faith in the engineering capacity of the architects and the and the construction firms who are behind the uh, the, the 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 facility there in Manhattan. And um, I mean, I definitely did come away, and 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 Nikki did as well. You know, convinced of their competence and and the fact that they're doing a great job. Um, you know, they've done a, an unbelievable amount of tests, including 
um, you know, having security teams come through to actually uh, kind of game out where maybe a terrorist attack might try to strike the building. Um, they've also looked at the tornado hardiness of the building itself. So theoretically, this thing is actually going to be able to withstand a Category 5 tornado. Um, and it will be able to do that through uh, not just the sheer mass of the building, but also because it's got a really, really interesting and complex air handling system. So that even when the pressure drops and a tornado hits, um, the inside of the building will be able to adjust to that so that the labs that are under different kinds of air pressure can, can adjust on the fly and uh, you know, won't start venting you know, animal diseases into the, into the surrounding landscape. Um, but it was pretty sobering. Uh, in 2010, there was actually a federal study that was commissioned to look at the possibility <laughs> of release there. And they actually found that there was a 70%, that is a 70% chance of, of a uh, escape uh, of a of a virus or or microbe or other pathogen from the laboratory, um, that was thankfully before the tornado hardening and before uh, many other things happened to, um, you know, kind of uh, upgrade the design and make it more secure. And now, at least theoretically, that that seventy percent risk of escape is now a point one percent risk of escape. Um, but it is actually, you know, it's it's a. I mean, imagining these kinds of diseases, you know, if you think Plum Island is close to population centers. Um, you know, this is even closer in the sense that it's close to a population, maybe not a human population, because it's, you know, it's the heart of agricultural Kansas, uh, but the, it's, the, it's the heart of cattle country. So this is the one place you would think that you wouldn't necessarily want to be looking at uh, diseases like foot and mouth. Um, but at the same time, it just goes to show how, uh, yeah, how extreme our engineering capabilities are and also just how committed the teams are to uh, ensuring its safety. You know, Marion, maybe you can just sort of give us a sense, my sense, I don't spend a lot of time along the Connecticut coastline, and I don't spend any time on Long Island, but when I'm there, I feel like I don't have to go very far. I could sit in the bar at the Saybrook Point Inn for a couple of hours on a busy night and pretty easily find some people who'd want to talk about Plum Island or think that they got Lyme disease because of Plum Island or tell me that when they see people getting off the ferry, workers getting off the ferry at Old Saybrook, that they they have these strange expressions on their faces and they don't talk to one another. Of course, I think they've actually taken three showers in order to get off the island. That might have taken a little bit of the vivacity out of them. But I, I, I don't know. My sense is there's kind of a low murmur in the vicinity of Plum Island of, of kind of worry or maybe just people who thrill in trafficking and X-File stuff. I think that's true. I was at my little post office mailing copies of my book, and I happened to speak to somebody, and two strangers said, oh, that's the Lyme disease place. So <laughs> that's my anecdote. But at the same time, under um, the last director, the lab made a point of having visits and opening the island up, because as the authors of the wonderful history book about Plum Island from the North Fork say, it seems as though the less people knew about Plum Island, the more they invented. And so the and and so mm -hmm. the, the, the the operations director had a lot of nonprofits and schools uh, come to visit, and it you know and you got to remember. 400 people were coming from Connecticut and New York every day to work there. Um, there you know, so uh, they're the biggest fans of protecting the island because they, they, they know the biodiversity and the birds and you know, have been really um, you know, interested in seeing a, a, a conservation outcome. But you know, this, this, this Lyme disease theory is really, uh, it's, it, it is ubiquitous. 
Uh, you're absolutely right that the, the oldest human, you know, I've, I've done the research too. The oldest mm. human with Lyme disease was supposedly found in the Alps, 5,300 year, year old corpse, and that the bacteria itself has been found in, you know, 12 million years old. Um, but this 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 rumor does did get a lot of play, and I just the the most of the theories about Plum Island they're they're not well documented. They're not you just don't see footnotes. You don't see <laughs> you just don't see the kind of references that would give them credibility. I mean, we do know um, that, and, and you sort of already uh, I think kind of referenced it, Jeff. I mean, uh, that. There are, I think, in the article you say close calls. I mean, there was in '78, for example, uh, the the hoof and mouth disease kind of wasn't maybe as ideally contained as it could have been. I mean, I I, I imagine if you're going to have a facility facility like this, you're going to have what are ideally close calls as opposed to disasters. I mean, you certainly will. Um, I think that you know to echo Marion's point, I think that it's it's easy to go too far and and start inventing conspiracy theories that are more like a Stephen King novel as opposed to something that actually is going to happen or has happened. Um, but, you know, these kinds of facilities, these kinds of high-risk infrastructural sites, I think do just inspire fear. You know, people get a feeling, you know, if there's a nuclear power plant uh, in, you know, one county over, or if there's an animal disease research center, or we saw it when Ebola uh, during the outbreak when uh, uh, nurses and doctors were returning to the United States who had potentially been exposed to it, you know, the fear was that Ebola would break out and, and you know, uh, become endemic in Dallas or Boston or wherever it might be. Um, but, you know, I think giving into that kind of fear is, is a mistake. It's definitely interesting if you're a screenwriter or, or a novelist or that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, I think that uh, those kinds of close calls are just sort of par for the course for, to a certain extent for, for some of these things. You know, someone just accidentally... Uh, you know, it does something very minor. And thankfully, you know, uh, you know, we've had a really good safety record for these kinds of things. Um, but yes, to your point, you know, um, you know, also there was an interesting thing in 2002 uh, when um, the organizers, uh, federal organizers put together a role-playing simulation about what would happen if foot and mouth did escape, um, you know, and what would it take to mop it up and to clean things up. And, um, you know, the consequences are really, are, are, are quite bad. You know, it's a low risk, high consequence event. Um, and in this particular case uh, of this simulation in 2002, um, the National Guard was actually called up within the simulation and they had to start putting down farm animals throughout the region. And it actually got so bad that the National Guard ran out of bullets um, in the simulation. So, you know, I just think that that's the, the kind of thing. If you're dealing with something that um, if the consequences of it are high, even if there's very little risk that it will happen, um, you know, you, you definitely need to plan for it and, it and it can keep you up at night. But it's, it's, it's the kind of thing that shouldn't become uh, 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 the origin of, of conspiracy theories. So, you know, um, I've seen HUD, so I know all about hoof and mouth disease. Uh, but um, I think there's sort of three different strands that kind of get wrapped up here, Jeff. Um, one of them is the notion, we're kind of talking about it right now. I mean, hoof and mouth is a pretty apolitical uh, disease. It's not, I, I don't think, known to have ever been weaponized or anything like that. So you've just got diseases kind of like the one we just went through that you are, or are still going through that you just, you know, you don't want them to spread. You don't want them to get get out and wipe out huge uh, um, amounts of our food supply or whatever. That's 
one. Then there's this kind of notion that maybe somebody would intentionally in, uh, uh, introduce diseases like this. And I've seen some reporters saying that there were al-Qaeda people who had had documentation that indicated that they were aware of, for example, Plum Island. But you, you want to be able to fight it off if it's ever used as a bioweapon. And then there's sort of rumors, and they date back even really before 54 to this guy, Eric Traub, who'd been a, a Nazi scientist, was recruited so that the Russians wouldn't get him, uh, who at least set foot on Plum Island a few times. There are prevailing notions that somehow or other, either here or maybe to come in Kansas, we're developing uh, our, our own bioweapons. I don't know. Can you pull that lanyard apart a little bit? I mean, just in terms of the uh, the relevance of each one of those three threads? Uh, well, sure. I mean, the the possibility of these things being weaponized, I think, is a is a real fear. Um, you know, actually, one of the things that uh, was quite interesting about researching the new facility in Manhattan is that the president of that university is uh, a former uh, ch uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, named Richard Myers, uh, General Richard Myers, and um, and he had actually been um, involved when the uh, I think it was a SEAL team in Afghanistan actually found that list, the Al Qaeda list of plant and animal pathogens that were clearly indicating that Al Qaeda was interested in pursuing these kinds of things. They were looking at anthrax, they were looking at rice blast, um, stem rust, which is a, a disease of wheat, um, with the idea being that they, or well, the presumed idea being that they would actually be targeting the global food supply. You know, what better way to sort of bring the world to its knees than to get rid of its ability to eat? Um, and so that kind of um, realization that, you know, our adversaries might be targeting these soft targets, um, uh, you know, it was part of what inspired um, General Myers when he then ended up at Kansas State University to really kind of help push for the already existing um, uh, desire there to open up a BSL-4 level uh, facility that we're, we're now, you know, is going to be the next Plum Island. Um, but yeah, so it's a, definitely it's a real fear. I mean, we, you know, our our enemies might do it, um, and uh, and it would have uh, catastrophic consequences if if that were to be the case. Uh, of course, it's actually quite easy to spread some of these diseases, which um, is the unfortunate aspect of it all. Um, and then in terms of our own capacity, I mean, I'm definitely not an expert in biological weaponry in terms mm -hmm. of the United States military, but I do know that we are contractually or treaty bound, uh, you know, not to develop these kinds of things. Um, if if in you know further conspiracy thinking, you know that kind of thing you know is is going on. I feel like I would just leave that to the to the novelists and the screenwriters. Uh, but uh, um, but yeah, I mean these these things are 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 very risky, and and you don't really you 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 would only want to work with them very carefully, which is why that we have such t tightly engineered and, and very secure facilities for it. So you know, yes, uh, I think it should yeah, be mentioned. Sure. Could I just jump in? Yeah, and Marianne, say that please one do. of the big aspects of the work at the Plum Island Lab was to develop a vaccine for uh, animals uh, against uh, the, the ability of, of foot and mouth to spread. That's right. Yeah. So, um, you know, Marion mentioned, uh, I think, the one-way shoot for animals that was shown to reporters in, in 54. This whole uh, question of the disposition of animal carcasses in a place where you're messing about with, with pathogens like this is obviously a pretty big one. Jeff, what did you find out about what they're going to do in Kansas with animal carcasses and, and whether it's substantially different from what they've done on Blum Island? Well, yeah, carcass disposal was a was a unexpectedly fascinating uh, and and morbid topic. Uh, I, uh, to be honest, um, it was it was quite interesting to learn the difference even just between two different facilities that exist there in Manhattan. Um, there is the Biosecurity Research Institute that already exists, and then right next door is the place that they're building now, uh, which uh, will will be the Plum Island replacement. 
Um, but so some of the anecdotes, at least that we learned, uh, were pretty incredible. Um, in the existing, uh, the BRI, the Biosecurity Research Institute, um, they actually put the corpses of these potentially or actually infected animals into these giant tissue digesters and basically reduce them down to what are called bone shadows. It's a kind of uh, alkaline soup of mm -hmm. uh, what used to be an animal body. Um, the bones themselves can be, you know, are turned into a kind of uh, crystalline shadow of themselves. Uh, and then the liquid is actually stored until they can get rid of it through the municipal sewage system. So they actually call the local sewage plant and say, hey, are you ready to take this? You know, is this a, is this a good time to get rid of our animal uh, carcass waste? And then they just put it into the sewer system, you know, in the middle of the night. I should emphasize that it's sterile. It's not a you know, it's not infected animal parts or anything being being sent through the, the sewers. Um, but nevertheless, it's a very evocative image to imagine this kind of liquid animal waste being sent out through the city sewers at, at midnight while, while the town is sleeping. Um, but NBAF, the, the new place next door, uh, is actually, you know, uh, upping the bar for how they get rid of uh, animal, animal bodies. And so um, there's everything from extreme sterilization. There's even in partial incineration. There's a, there's a lot of things that are uh, really quite good. There's nothing really to, you know, there's no reason to be scared of how they are getting rid of uh, the corpses. They've, they've, there are redundancies on top of redundancies. All right. Uh, apologies to anybody who had like a big lunch right before they started uh, yeah. listening to the show. Do we do we know? Um, I'll ask you. Marion may also know, but I'll start with you, Jeff. Do we know anything about what Plum Island did or does with animal carcasses? Uh, alas, I would probably kick that to Marion. Unfortunately, I, 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 we did not look into the specifics of, of animal mm. corpse disposal yeah. on, on Plum Island. I, I'm not sure that we that I, we that we made sure that anybody did know. But Marion, do you do you know anything about this? I know that there haven't been animals there for a while. Yeah, that they actually had an issue with uh, some of their sewage disposal, and they've mm -hmm. they've recently built a new treatment plant. So there haven't been animals there for a while. And prior to that, you know, gosh, it's not something that I brushed up yeah. on for this interview. Sorry. No, no worries. Uh, I just that it does sort of bleed, so to speak, into our final segment here, which I will introduce in a little while. But Marion, I guess one of the things that I'm sort of wondering about and just listening to Jeff talk, thinking about even more is imagine that, you know, all of the conservation dreams come true and we have this beautiful and basically pristine nature preserve uh, and, and historical uh, um, uh touring opportunity in terms of Fort Terry and stuff like that and and the uh, preservation of habitat and some kind of thing where boats can come out and, you know, guided tours can take place and stuff like that. Um, would, would it make sense? I mean, we already agreed they're not going to go on tours of Building 257, but would it make some sense to, you know, with the visitor center or something? I, I, I would imagine there would have to be some kind of commemoration of and and – and some kind of, I mean, we're not just going to brush this under the rug, right? We're going to. Correct. correct. Uh, yeah. I mean, and not only that, but going back in time, there's a lot of excitement about cultural restoration as well as the biological restoration in terms of um, anthropological, um, archaeological research um, and, and better documentation of the early use by Algonquin peoples, you know, staging across sound trading trips and fishing and, and you know, perhaps some way to the, the there's a center in New York for um, uh, uh, native peoples and the environment. And they talk about biocultural restoration. You heal the wounds to the land and preserve habitat while you also try to heal some of the wounds to the people. And, you know, there's that injustice. And then there's also the possibility of education and, and memorial to um, 
the, the you know the the injustices to many members of the LGBTQ community in the military. So there's a lot of potential for education, for healing, and the the Animal Disease Center is just uh, one other way in which humans dealt with uh, you know modern life and fear you know and and fairly successfully. Uh, and yes, you can't. It's part of the history of Plum Island. Mm. Uh, so how you deal with that. Uh, how you document that, it's another opportunity to uh, for education and understanding. I mean, I've learned so much uh, researching Plum Island and, and also listening to Jeff and everything that's going on at, at the NBAF. I guess I know now why it's taken so long, because they all thought this was uh, the island was going to be sold in 2014 or 2015. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to have to stop there. We've been talking about talking to Jeff Maino, uh, co-author with uh, Nicola Twilley of Until Proven Safe, The History and Future of Quarantine, a very timely publication. Uh, Marion Lindbergh is a conservation specialist for Nature Conservancy and the author of Scandal on Plum Island, A Commander Becomes the Accused. In our final segment, I don't know, we're going to maybe jump off the public radio side of the pool and really talk about one possible thing that happens to animal carcasses is they become cryptozoological monsters and wash up on beaches. There, I've said it. All right, get ready. Oh, I didn't know I was supposed to do a Robert Stack voice. I would have practiced. Nobody warned me. All right, so uh, we are going to, first of all, before we do all this, I want to thank uh, Kat Pastor. She's the person in the control room playing all these clips and keeping the show running properly. She's our technical producer. This episode is produced by Jonathan McPants. Uh, and I was, you know, I think I could do Robert Stack, but I need more warning. Uh, all right, so we're going to talk a little bit about the latest, the final leg of our journey uh, ends on a sandy beach uh, on Long Island uh, where something washed up uh, quite a few years ago. Uh, it became known as the Montauk Monster. Here to talk about this is uh, Ellen Killerin, who wrote a piece called, she wrote a piece in 2018 called 10 Years Later, the Montauk Monster is Still a Weird gross, dark mystery. I would imagine that the intervening years have done nothing to dissipate that sense. Uh, Ellen Killer is a staff reporter and editor at Crime Online. Welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Hello. Hi. So uh, tell us just really quickly about uh, said Montauk monster. What, 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 did it, what was it? What, is it? what did it look like? It looked like nothing that most of us had ever seen before. Um, it looked like a monstrous creature. Um, it washed up in July of 2008. So this is 13 years ago. And it was, it became known to the rest of us by way of a Gawker story that published the photo of it. Very few people that I'm aware of actually saw this thing if it did even exist um all of the all of the discussion around it and the analysis of it was based on photographs um so the strongest theory there's so many theories but the strongest one and when i say strongest i mean the one that seems to be the most agreed upon is that it was a raccoon 
Right. I mean, it, it, it didn't look much like a raccoon in the photos that we've seen. Yeah. And, and I think the other thing that really characterizes this, as so often characterizes anything that kind of blurs into cryptozoology and conspiracy theories and all kinds of stuff, is that A, there, it's nobody knows where, where it went, right? I mean, it was lying dead on the beach, but I mean, pretty quickly, the chain of custody collapsed. <laughs> That's a very good way of putting it. Um, yeah, it it absolutely disappeared. There was about two weeks between when this photograph was purportedly taken and when New York City media got a hold of it. So there was, as as I said in my observer piece about it, there was time to hide the body, and and it sure it sure was hidden. Anyone who even was willing to admit that they had seen it or knew anything about it all had stories about how it had been buried in someone's yard, but then stolen from there. Nobody, no one was willing to tell a cohesive story about where it was. So like I said, very few people have seen this creature if in fact it was a creature and no one who knows what happened to it is willing to talk about it. And by the way, for people who make the mistake of watching the Jesse Ventura quote-unquote documentary episode about all this stuff. There's stuff about that and allegations that there was another one after that. And then there maybe where there was a mutant person, dead person who washed up on the beach after that. So, I mean, you can have your, your paranoia inflamed as much as you want. But, I mean, there, there was a, a pretty persistent belief that whatever this thing was, it could have come from Plum Island. Just give us a sort of sense of what you heard about that. Absolutely. That was, that was probably the second most popular theory was that it was some sort of an escaped mutant from Plum Island. And I think one of the reasons that that theory was popular is because it did look like a mutant. It did not look like a raccoon um, at all. Not to, not to me. Um, so that was definitely one of, one of the most pervasive theories. Um, I did speak to some people about that when I reported the story, including, including one reporter who had been there um, and he had only been to the level one part of it, but he still had to go through a government approval process to get there. And he believes that the security was so tight that nothing could have possibly escaped, certainly not an animal. Um, and, but like you guys were discussing earlier, we don't know how the carcasses were disposed um, at that facility. So it's it's still it's still a rumor that's that's flying around for sure. So um, you know one of the reasons I think that Steven Spielberg's movies are so popular is because they are like life. So if he were making this movie, the the carcass would have been discovered by three girls, which it which it was, you know, <laughs> and then the town would have gotten really paranoid and refused to talk to reporters about it, which is also what happened, right? Reporting on this is really hard because this like this Long Islandy beach community thing, nothing to see here. That's basically what you encountered, right? Absolutely. And remember, of course, I didn't try and report on this until 10 years after the fact. But I will say this, um, I do a lot of difficult reporting. And this was definitely one of the most memorable in terms of getting sources to agree to talk. But going back to 2008, that was a time that Montauk had really started to become on the radar of, of, of the scene, so called, and where it became something that city people tried to kind of claim as their own, which of course, when this happens is the source of frustration 
for people who have lived there and enjoyed the peace of living there for you know their whole lives before it became immensely popular with people who don't know much about it. So one of the really interesting things to me about this story is considering the possibility that it was all made up. Uh, that, you know, yes. I like to think about... You want to get people off the beach, tell them there's a monster uh, flying around there. All right, we're going to have to stop, Ellen Killer, and I could talk to you about this for quite a bit longer. I'm sure you can get to the bottom of the Montauk Monster. And thanks for listening to the show about Plum Island. We're already getting somebody complaining that we weren't paranoid enough. I'm sorry about that. If you're brave and strong, you'll last the trip. But if you're weak, you'll scream and run away. Join us on the trip to Monster Island, where the beast of terror hunts you down. If you're brave and strong, you'll last the trip. But if you're slow, you'll probably be never found.